I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotel's family of 22 brands has over 7,400 locations and the perfect hotel for any traveler you want to be. Like a Cambria Hotel serving up locally inspired craft cocktails for all my folks who maybe want to meet up and talk about Mad Royals. Check into a Radisson Hotel with flexible workspaces for you strivers who listen during business travel. Or a Comfort Hotel with free hot breakfast, family-friendly pools, and big spacious rooms for the parents who listen with their kids and need a little retreat. What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And not just the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go papertarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Today's episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you by Tracker. Tracker is finding more than a million misplaced items each day. Order yours and never lose anything again. Listeners to this show get a free Tracker Bravo with any order. Go to thetracker.com and enter promo code HISTORY. The hardest thing you'll ever have to find is their website. Go to thetracker.com right now and enter promo code HISTORY for your free Tracker Bravo with any order. Again, that's thetracker.com, promo code HISTORY. Are you looking for brand new episodes of a short How Stuff Works podcast that explains the everyday world around us? Then check out Brain Stuff with me, Christian Sager. New episodes hit every Monday and Wednesday on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Tracy, I got to do a cool thing. I know you did. I know, I'm so lucky. Uh, so recently, I was lucky enough to visit NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center to see the completed mirror assembly on the James Webb Space Telescope. And House of Works has been covering the telescope for a while. We were there last year uh, when we first visited Goddard. And at that point, they were just starting to install the mirrors. Like, the first mirror was... 
hanging over it ready to be installed. And as part of the press conference proceedings at this recent visit, NASA Administrator Charles Bolden mentioned that most people don't really know much about James Webb, who is the telescope's namesake. They tend to assume that he was a scientist or an engineer, but that is not the case at all. And in fact, when you said, when you relayed that to me, my response was sort of, he wasn't? No. Uh, and so because I am a little bit of a space nerd, uh, and because it's timely, I thought it might be a good time to talk about James Webb and his really important role in NASA's development, as well as achievements for the human race and uh, as a champion for science. But we're also going to hop back to the pre-NASA days to really see sort of how the agency formed. So it's kind of a parallel story of both James Webb and how NASA developed. James Edwin Webb was born in Tally Ho, North Carolina, on October 7th, 1906. For geographical context, Tally Ho is a township in Granville County, about 33 miles north of Raleigh-Durham International Airport. His parents were John Frederick and Sarah Gorham Webb, and John was a career educator. He was a school superintendent in Granville County for 26 years. And James attended the University of North Carolina. He received his degree in education in 1928. And after school, he joined the U.S. Marine Corps, and Webb was an active-duty pilot from 1930 to 1932. In 1932, he moved to Washington, D.C. Congressman Edward W. Pooh of North Carolina and chair of the House Rules Committee hired Webb to be his secretary, which is a job he held for two years. After his time there, he became assistant to Omax Gardner in 1934. Gardner was an attorney and the former governor of North Carolina, and in that time, Webb worked for him, which was from 1934 to 1936. He was also attending Washington University to study law himself. He passed the bar in 1936. Yeah, so already you probably get the idea that he's not <laughs> not the scientist engineer you thought. In fact, he was interested in education and law and became a lawyer. And after he finished law school, Webb moved on to Brooklyn, New York, and a position at Sperry Gyroscopics Company, working initially as their personnel director. Sperry manufactured electronics and equipment, including military aircraft components, and worked with inventors to support their projects and develop new technologies. And while working for Sperry, James Webb uh, got married. He married Patsy Aiken Douglas in 1938. And that couple eventually had two children, Sarah Gorman, Gorham, who was born on February 27th of 1945, and their son, James Edwin Jr., who was born on March 5th of 1947. Webb moved up the ranks at Sperry, was promoted to secretary-treasurer and then vice-president, which is a role he served in until 1944. At that point, he left his corporate position to once again join the Marines and serve in World War II. And when the war ended, Webb went back to Washington, D.C. and back to working for Omax Gardner. And at that point, Gardner was the undersecretary of the Treasury, and Webb served as his executive assistant. But Webb soon moved on to another position. He was selected to be director of the Bureau of the Budget in the executive office of the president under Harry S. Truman. And he served in that role until 1949, when President Truman asked Webb to be undersecretary of state, U.S. Department of State. When Truman's presidency ended in 1953, Webb moved away from Washington all the way to Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, where he worked as a director at Kerr McGee Oil Corporation. After about eight years back in corporate work, he once again found himself drawn into a government position. Yeah, so while he was actually at an appreciation luncheon for Senator Robert S. Kerr in Oklahoma City, he was called away from the table to take an important phone call. 
And the person on the line was Dr. Jerome Wiesner, who was chairman of John F. Kennedy's Science Advisory Committee. And he was calling on behalf of the president to offer James Webb the position of administrator of NASA. What a way to have your dinner interrupted. <laughs> right? I was having lunch. There were speakers. You want to do what? <laughs> I feel like this happened on an episode of Grey's Anatomy. So... Webb said he would consider the offer and agreed to meet with Vice President Lyndon Johnson about it. He flew to Washington that night, and initially he really didn't want the job. He felt like he'd have his hands just tied constantly and that he would be forced to try to administer plans that he did not have any part of setting. When he got to Johnson's office, he first spoke with Dr. Hugh Dryden and said, Hugh, I don't believe this job is for me. What do you think? And he said, I agree with you. I don't believe it is either. (laughs) And we're going to talk a little bit more about Hugh Dryden in a bit, but just know this is a person who knew what this job entailed. Uh, And Webb then tried to get another friend in politics to tell Vice President Johnson that he should not take this job, but that didn't go over well. Uh, So Webb sort of then spent a lot of time trying to get people to help him not be offered this job anymore. He reached out to some of his Washington contacts in an effort to help get out of it. And he was finally sent to uh, lawyer and political advisor Clark Clifford, as he was the man that people would say, like, if anybody can get you out of this and fix the situation, it's him. In an interview, Webb described this exchange with Clifford, called up Clifford and said, Clifford, you've got to help me get out of this. And he said, Ha ha, I'm the one that recommended you. I'm not going to help you get out of it. And in the end, uh, after a lot of back and forth and some cajoling, President Kennedy told James Webb that he wanted him. And in Webb's words, quote, I've never said no to any president who has asked me to do things. And on February 14th of 1961, James Webb became the administrator of NASA via appointment by President John F. Kennedy. Before we continue with Webb's work at NASA, we're going to back up just a little bit and talk about how NASA came to be. We're going to go all the way back to 1915, which may surprise you and how early that origin story starts. Yeah, but before we take that little time travel, uh, we're going to pause for a word from one of our fantastic sponsors. It's a little bit early in the show to do so, but this will mean that we can keep NASA's origin story all in one segment. So we're going to have a little sponsor break. That sponsor is 1-800-Flowers. There's a lot of details that go into hosting a Thanksgiving. If you've ever done it, you know your head might pop off from fear and stress. That's why I don't. Uh, I've only done it a couple times. And your attention may be completely consumed by your beautiful maple glazed turkey or however you like to to make yours. But don't forget, the table decor really adds a lot to your celebration. So this Thanksgiving, you can create the perfect atmosphere with a 1-800-Flowers centerpiece. Right now, 1-800-Flowers has a vast selection of centerpieces with vibrant roses, lilies, daisies, just about any beautiful flower you might enjoy in the fall. And the best part is they start at just $29.99. So whether you're ordering a centerpiece for your own Thanksgiving table or you're sending it to a loved one's gathering, uh, 1-800-Flowers offers gorgeous hand design centerpieces. And 1-800-Flowers works with premier farms around the world to ensure you get the best flowers available for the best price possible. Every centerpiece and bouquet is backed by their 100% smile guarantee. So if you or your loved one has any issue, 1-800-Flowers will make it right no matter what, no questions asked. 1-800-Flowers is actually the only company that I use to deliver fresh from the field Thanksgiving centerpieces. So to get beautiful centerpieces starting at just $29.99, go to 1-800-Flowers.com on your desktop or mobile device, click on the radio icon, and enter the code STUFF. That's 1-800-Flowers.com. Don't forget that radio icon and enter STUFF. 
1915 was the year that the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics formed in the United States. And at that point, uh, manned air flight was just a little more than a decade into development. And while uh, Americans Wilbur and Orville Wright had gained international acclaim for their work in flight, the United States had not held the line at the bleeding edge of this technology. European efforts were very quickly surpassing American airplane work. So on March 3rd of 1915, NACA was founded by Congress, and this was an independent agency of the government reporting directly to the president. And at the time, the establishment of this branch of government got almost no attention. It had actually been attached to the 1915 Naval Appropriation Bill, and this particular part of it had not been spotlighted, so most people didn't even know it happened. In that initial inception, Brigadier General George Scriven headed up the committee with 12 committee members total. Members were not paid for their work, and they met every several months. There was, however, one paid employee at NACA, a man named John F. Victory. This is his real name. Victory was a stenographer who served as the committee's clerk, writing letters, managing responses as they reached out to universities, aeronautics clubs, government contacts, and industrialists. Yeah, they realized pretty quickly that uh, if they wanted to kind of have all of these tendrils out to try to talk to people and and get information and grow this idea. They couldn't just do that with these dudes that came in once every few months on a volunteer basis. They really needed somebody. And in its early years, the NACA developed wind tunnels to run flight tests on aircraft. And eventually, the agency began recruiting engineers and scientists to continue to advance aviation technology. In 1920, NACA's annual report included a call for a national aviation policy, something that a lot of people felt was absolutely necessary if the United States was going to keep pace with the rest of the world. One section of it reads, aviation is still in its infancy. Its possibilities, while unknown, appeal to the imagination. The forced development during war and some of the experimental development since have not been based upon scientific research and sound scientific principles that make for substantial progress. Technical training is necessary, including education and advanced aeronautical engineering. So is the actual training of a large body of men. Technical training is necessary, including education in the, uh, in advanced aeronautical engineering. So is the actual training of a large body of men in the technique of the care and operation of aircraft. Broadly speaking, scientific research, technical training, and commercial avi- aviation constitute or should constitute the backbone of a national policy. And by the 1930s, NACA had expanded significantly to include a number of aircraft laboratories. And it was in those facilities that the committee simplified aircraft production by designing better wings and propellers. And the work that was conducted in those labs ended up being vital to the flying forces of World War II. In the late 1940s, NACA turned its focus to supersonic flight, working in collaboration with the U.S. Air Force and Bell Aircraft. It was through these efforts that the historic X-1 flight of Captain Chuck Yeager, the first supersonic flight, was made possible in 1947. This paved the way for additional experimental work in aircraft technology. In the 1950s, missile technology was also explored and developed at NACA as a result of rising Cold War tensions. And eventually this stretched into research of manned flight in space and the addition of a rocket launch site to NACA's facilities. 
By 1957, NACA employed 8,000 employees, spread across two field stations and three research facilities. And the chair of the main committee, by the way, was previous subject, previous podcast subject, James Doolittle. And a physicist who we mentioned earlier, Dr. Hugh L. Dryden, was NACA's director. Then Sputnik happened. On October 4th, 1957, the Soviet Union successfully launched the first artificial Earth satellite. Sputnik 1 was roughly the size of a beach ball and weighed 183.9 pounds, or 83.6 kilograms, and it orbited the Earth in a 98-minute cycle. It circled the Earth for about three months before dropping out of orbit and burning up during atmospheric reentry on January 4th, 1958. And while Sputnik 1's life was relatively brief... It had changed everything. The Soviet launch had taken the U.S. entirely by surprise. The U.S. had been working on its own satellites as part of an initiative on the part of the International Council of Scientific Unions, which was called the International Geophysical Year. And the IGY was intended to take advantage of the high solar activity that was expected that year uh, as part of their scientific work. And one part of that project was the launch of satellites by multiple agencies to map the surface of our planet. But the bottom line was that even though the U.S. was working on these things, the Soviet Union had beaten the U.S. into space. The response on the part of the United States government was to immediately fund the Explorer satellite project. Another project, Vanguard, was already in the works. Explorer launched less than four weeks after Sputnik 1's demise on January 31st, 1958. Vanguard, the first solar-powered satellite, launched on March 17th of that year. Vanguard, by the way, is still in orbit. It's the oldest man-made object still circling the Earth, uh, although we haven't been able to talk to it since 1964. Yeah, but it's still up there. <laughs> um, but the more important reaction to this surprise that was Sputnik was the creation of the National Aeronautics and Space Administration in July of 1958 through the congressional passing of the National Aeronautics and Space Act. Dr. Dryden, working with Doolittle and after consulting the younger members of NACA management, wrote a report issued in January 1958 titled, quote, National Research Program for Space Technology. In this report, Dryden outlined a plan for the NACA to combine with other government entities to create a space program. And this was actually kind of like a, a time of great concern within NACA. They didn't know what they were going to become. The reason that they talked to younger members of management was that they felt like these are the people who are the future. Whereas the senior levels of management were probably not going to be around for as long and as much of a driving force for whatever this new possibility could be. So, uh, they really, you know, were trying to think long term about what NACA could become. And so as a provision of this space act and after this report had gone out, NACA was turned over to NASA on October 1st of 1958. And so were the Army's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which we still know as JPL, and Redstone Arsenal at Huntsville, Alabama, which is now known as Marshall Space Flight Center. And much of NACA's leadership went on to helm this new space agency. NASA's first administrator was Thomas Keith Glennon, who had served in, who would serve in that role until 1961. As a side note, John Victory, who had started as the clerk for NACA, was still in the picture when NASA was founded. He had been promoted to secretary in 1921 and executive secretary after World War II. He became a special assistant to NASA's chief administrator when the new agency was formed until his retirement in 1960. 
And one of NASA's earliest goals was an unmanned mission to the moon. Once again, the Soviet Union was faster. Several attempts were made in late 1958 by NASA to fly a craft past the moon, but all failed at various points in their respective missions. But then on Jan- in January of 1959, the USSR's Luna 1 launched. It passed by the moon, and then it went on to orbit the sun. The U.S. did manage to do the same thing two months later with the Pioneer 4 on March 3rd, but the fact that NASA was lagging behind Soviet efforts was really problematic for morale, both at the agency and in the country as a whole. The space race is just such a time of high drama. Yeah, oh, it totally is. (laughs) Yeah. NASA spent 1959 working hard to prepare a vehicle that would orbit the moon. But on September 14th, 1959, the Soviet Union crash-landed on the surface of the moon with Luna 2. Six days later, the New York Times read the headline, quote, Russia's moonshot again demonstrates its lead in space race. The following month, the Soviet Union photographed the backside of the moon with Luna 3, widening their lead in that race. And things went from bad to worse on November 26th of 1959. That was Thanksgiving Day. And on that day, NASA launched a lunar orbiter at 1.32 a.m. But 45 seconds into the flight, the craft's fiberglass shroud blew off. The rocket broke up, and the lunar orbiter ended up in the Atlantic Ocean. This was a lot of time and effort that was now just sitting at the bottom of the sea. And it was one more public failure, and it launched a series of pretty brutal reassessments of the U.S. space program. While there had been some successes in 1959, there had been a number of satellite launches that offered real learning. It was just a rough time for NASA. Difficulties that played out among the various branches that comprised NASA's structure, in addition to the more visible problems of very high-profile project failures. As a new agency working in a relatively new field, there were some significant issues with process and hierarchy, A lot of 1960 was spent in reorganizing and establishing clear guidelines and lines of communication within the agency. And now we're going to pick back up with James Webb's time at NASA. Uh, But first, we'll take a quick break and talk about one of our sponsors. So I know when I want a snack and all I can find is junk food, there's no option about, like, no snack. (laughs) My options are unhealthy snack and no snack. I'm going to eat the junk food. Word. Uh, So NatureBox is a great way to get around that conundrum. NatureBox makes snacks that actually taste great and are better for you. They are created with high-quality ingredients, free from artificial colors, flavors, or sweeteners, so you can feel better about snacking. I personally am really into the aged cheddar lentil loops um, and the strawberry lemonade fruit stars, not at the same time, because that'd be a weird flavor combination. But if I'm into crunchy, lentil loops. If I'm into sweet, <laughs> fruit stars. So NatureBox recently made their service even better. Now you can order as much as you want, as often as you want. There's no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel anytime. It is simple. Go to naturebox.com and check out their snack catalog. There are more than a hundred snacks to choose from. They are constantly adding delicious new snacks. You can choose the ones you want and they deliver them right to your door. With NatureBox, you'll never get bored. There are new snacks every month inspired by real customer feedback. And if you ever try one that you don't like, NatureBox will replace it for free. Right now, save even more. NatureBox is offering stuff you missed in history class fans. 50% off your first order when you go to naturebox.com slash history. That's naturebox.com slash history for 50% off your first order. One last time, naturebox.com slash history. 
So when we left off with James Webb's story, it was February of 1961, and he had just started working as NASA's administrator. And the problems that that fledgling organization had during its initial years certainly offer insight into why Webb was reluctant initially to take this position. He had made it very clear from the beginning that he would have his own vision of how things should run. Remember, he had worked in the corporate sector, and he was really good at setting up bureaucracy. Uh And he wanted this to have more to do with long-term achievement than the mere goal of being first to the moon. And at one point he said, quote, And so far as I'm concerned, I'm not going to run a program that's just a one-shot program. If you want me to be the administrator, it's going to be a balanced program that does the job for the country. Kennedy and Johnson had experienced some difficulty in filling the administrator job. More than a dozen people had already turned it down when they offered it to him, so he was in a position to make some demands. And additionally, while Webb knew many people in politics, he was uh, really an unknown to the scientists and the engineers that he would now oversee once he took this job. And there was a lot of trepidation on both sides because of it. There was fear at NASA that James Webb would not be science-minded and he would not be strong in terms of valuing and promoting the work that was happening there. Our listeners who are space buffs will recognize the significance of the year that Webb became NASA's administrator because it was just a few months into his time on the job on May 25th, 1961, when President John F. Kennedy made a bold announcement Quote, I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to Earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long long range exploration of space, and none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. That declaration was catalyzed in part by the fact that the Soviet Union had achieved another milestone, once again ahead of the United States, putting Yuri Gagarin in orbit around the Earth in April of 1961. And Kennedy set a really high bar for Webb, and NASA had spent seven years hustling to make a moon landing happen. Project Apollo became a massive effort of science, politics, and sheer will, all with the goal of landing on the moon and then returning to Earth before the Soviet Union could do it. It's so funny to me. Um, it's, I mean, it's obviously such a, a key point in global history as well as U.S. history, but I don't know why it always kind of makes me do quizzical puppy tilty head when I think about the fact that, like, one of the greatest things we ever did was really just done out of competition, It's fascinating to me. It's kind of like if you've ever seen Neil deGrasse Tyson speak and he says, if you want to go to Mars, somebody tell the U.S. government that another country is working on it. (laughs) Yeah. Like there, there were so many other political factors going on in the, in the relationship between the United States and the Soviet Union at this point. But there are parts of it where like you, as you're reading space race history, you're like, guys, stop arguing about whose rocket's bigger. (laughs) Right. We could all get even further if we stopped, to, but that's not how it works. Uh, and again, because Webb was exceptionally good at navigating the political system, remember he had worked in Washington, he was able, able to leverage the fever to beat the USSR to secure long-term support and funding from the president and the vice president and Congress. 
Again, he was really good at bureaucracy. Uh, he had NASA's long-term security in mind, and it was really that vision that helped lay the groundwork for the organization's establishment as a permanent agency. Because it was still experimental at this point. As part of the research and development that went into that goal, Webb fostered research programs that took the United States to new scientific heights. Robotic lunar crafts, probes to our neighboring planets, and plans for a space telescope all happened on his watch. Yeah, this is where we do the caveat where we're like, there are parts of history that we just can't go into every single point because it will take forever. Uh, I mean, I, I to talk about all of the things that were going on at NASA when Webb was the head of it, because he was there for a long time. And he did have this long-ranging idea. So we're not, like, talking about Mercury and all of these specifics that were going on with, like, the robotic work. But just know that he was fostering this incredible situation. You know, he was letting universities work with NASA. He was, you know, creating relationships with a number of other entities that were just kind of, like, helping to fuel this entire time of research and, and development. And all of these efforts were in part possible due to his establishment of a management system that gave workers greater access to their higher-ups to share ideas. And it also made the best use of the knowledge that various individuals had. For example, while Webb, recognizing that he was not a rocket scientist, he didn't know the science as much, even though he was a champion for it, he dealt with the political side of things. And then Robert Siemens, who had been part of NACA, acted as his deputy administrator, and he was able to put his knowledge of rocketry to work there. And Dr. Hugh Dryden, who you remember was head of the NACA for quite some time, served as an advisor, making best use of his considerable experience. So Webb was able to see what everybody was good at and capitalize on that without having people doing jobs they weren't really prepared for. Webb was also really not afraid to push back when he was questioned, even when the president of the United States was the person doing the questioning. When word began to circulate that James Webb was not prioritizing the Apollo program over other initiatives, Kennedy questioned him about it. Webb reminded the president that he had been given permission to run NASA as he saw fit, and that while getting to the moon was a priority, it wasn't the only priority. Yeah, there are, uh, I had not listened to them before this, but there is a recording of a conversation with, uh, that, uh, Charles Bolden had mentioned during that press conference I referenced at the top of the show, where he mentioned, oh, you know, there's a recording online of James Webb talking to the president, and you can tell that he did not hold back about having very heated discussions and really being quite bold at putting his opinions forth and standing his ground. So he wanted there to be a long-term approach to science, and he was willing to fight for program to totality instead of just focusing on that one goal, in this case going to the moon, that would be achieved, and then that goal would be done. Like He didn't want there to be one program with a beginning and an end. He needed there to be things around that that were going on after it and side by side. This was not a universally popular situation. Not everyone thought that this was a good plan. For example, the head of the Apollo program, Brainerd Holmes, was very vocal in his belief that Webb was wrong and everything that NASA had in terms of its resources should be put behind the moon effort. And he lost his job for that. (laughs) Webb fired him. And Webb had to find a new chief to run Apollo, and that was George Mueller. And remember, this was all going on when the space race was a very public issue. 
Uh, and Webb took a lot of criticism for making such drastic and big changes while the Soviets were also plugging along with their program. Webb was also willing to make ultimatums. When his engineers told him that the lunar orbit rendezvous method was the only viable way to get a lunar module home, he trusted them. When the idea met with resistance from detractors, James Webb backed his engineering team and told the president that if there was any more intrusion into the issue, he would resign. Yeah, he was able to be pretty bold. And again, it's part of the fact that he was very good at sort of politics and bureaucracy that he knew when to leverage his power and say, nope, um, this is how it's going to go. And it either happens this way or not at all. But unfortunately, as as is well known, on January 27th of 1967, NASA's first disaster unfolded. The Apollo Saturn 204 sat on launch pad 34 at Florida's Kennedy Space Center. Astronauts Gus Grissom, Edward White, and Roger Chaffee were on board performing simulation tests. The booster rocket was not fueled for these tests. The spacecraft was operating under its own electrical power. The tests ran as normal until it reached the point at 10 minutes until simulated liftoff. And at that point, one of the astronauts shouted fire and flames were visible through Apollo's windows. The heat caused the air pressure in the capsule to rise rapidly and the hull ruptured after just 17 seconds. All three astronauts aboard died. This was, of course, a devastating blow to the space program. In a statement to the press, Webb said, We've always known that something like this was going to happen sooner or later. But who would have thought the first tragedy would be on the ground? This was uh, massive. It was a problem. Aside from the tragedy of it, immediately everyone was wondering why we were spending all of this money on a program that ultimately had had failed before it ever got off the ground and had caused the deaths of three astronauts. And Webb made the case that he wanted NASA to investigate this accident rather than an outside entity, and he had to make assurances that there would be honest accounting of what had happened. And at this time, even though the Soviets were still working on similar initiatives, the space race had kind of lost a little bit of its luster. It was not quite as important as it had been at the start of the Apollo program. So the U.S. government and the U.S. people had a lot of other things to worry about, forefront, including Vietnam. The examination of the evidence indicated that an electrical fire had started in the equipment area under Grissom's seat. The pressurized pure oxygen atmosphere in the cabin had enabled an instant spreading of the flames, and while the astronauts had begun the hatch-opening procedure, there was just no way they could have managed it quickly enough to escape the blaze. Behind the scenes, contractors were being blamed for faulty work. And in turn, those contractors were blaming NASA's people for making changes to specs uh, of the the rocket and the launch vehicle mid-build. But as the findings were revealed outside of NASA, it really was largely James Webb who took the flack publicly for it. He sat before Congress and answered all manner of questions about basically every decision that was made that led ultimately to the loss of the rocket, the capsule, and the astronauts. And his image was certainly tarnished, but he really deflected a lot of that away from NASA as an organization. Webb, wanting to ensure that the Apollo program would continue to fruition, took all that heat and stress, allowing most of the employees that were part of the program to continue their work uninterrupted. He was simultaneously able to assure Congress that the Soviets were nearing the completion of a lunar landing project, which gave them just enough of a scare to allow the Apollo program to keep going. 
So he really had kind of saved it in that. Again, once again, using his his incredibly um, well-developed skills at navigating the political climate. Uh, and in 1968, as the hearings were wrapping up, James Webb considered the state of NASA. And while he had built it into a mostly smooth-running bureaucracy, it was not void of problems. Anything that big is going to have some issues. Uh, but he also couldn't plan for or sidestep every possible problem as this Apollo tragedy had just very clearly made apparent. And knowing that the lunar landing was really seen as Kennedy's initiative and that the next president would likely be Republican and might not want to continue a project that the Democratic president had started, the now exhausted Webb wanted to look toward the future of NASA leadership. Uh, recognizing that the once hopeful image the agency had was simply not quite as rosy after the Apollo tragedy, and he didn't want that to be the thing that killed it off. He really wanted to find a way to foster its future. So he arranged to meet with Lyndon Johnson about the issue. But Johnson took this discussion to mean that Webb was ready to resign that day, so he suddenly found himself out of the picture. So, while Tom Paine, his successor, got credit for the ultimate successes of the Apollo program, it was really Webb who had championed it, worked politically to ensure that it had long-term backing, endured the grilling and the blame for its failures, and rescued it from a very near glance with a complete shutdown. And in a lecture that was given at Goddard Space Flight Center in 2007, Biographer Piers Bizzoni said of James Webb, quote, There are a lot of people who loved him, just as many who hated him, but no one was neutral about him. After his retirement from NASA, James Webb served as regent of the Smithsonian Institution and sat on several other advisory boards. He was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1969, Smithsonian's Langley Gold Medal in 1976, and the Sylvanus Thayer Award from West Point for dedication to his country in 1981. And James Webb died in 1992, and he is buried at Arlington National Cemetery. And now we have the James Webb Space Telescope to carry on his name. This telescope is historically significant, not just because of the advancements that it represents, but also because of the history it will show us. It will be able to basically see back through time, in effect, as it will use infrared wavelengths to peer back and see the first stars and galaxies forming. It's like a space historian, and it's slated for launch in October of 2018. Yeah, I am in love with that thing. I will just be open about my bias. Uh, when I have seen it, it really is so moving. It's beautiful, for one thing. Like, it's just a really striking piece of equipment. If you have not seen it, I encourage you to go uh, do a search for it. There are some beautiful pictures of it out and about, especially um, NASA has a lot of them. If you go to jwst.nasa.gov, you will get all of the information on the space telescope. And so while it's interesting because it, it has, there have been detractors to the idea of naming it after James Webb. Uh, because he wasn't a scientist or an engineer. But to me, it seems so perfect because he really had such a sense of both looking back and looking forward at the same time that it seems like a perfect match to me. Uh, so that is hopefully a little bit of uh, insight into who James Webb was and why he is worthy of having an amazing new space telescope named after him. Do you also have listener mail? I do. I'll get past my space rabies for a moment because I really get excited about it. Uh, so we got the most amazing partial, Tracy. What is it? 
from our listener, Sarah, and I will read her note and then I will tell you about the amazing parcel. Tracy actually already knows because I freaked out and texted her. Uh, she writes, EGADS, imagine my excitement when I heard your interview with Ann Byrne. Being a professional and recreational baker, I thoroughly enjoyed learning about the history of American cake baking. American cake has for sure been added to my very long backlist or book list, I believe it is. Uh, thank you both for all you do. I love the podcast. Enjoy the cake baking supplies. Cheers. So Sarah apparently works for Bob's Red Mill <laughs> and she sent us everything, all the things, every pastry flour, every gluten-free baking mix. Um, which I super appreciate, uh, specialty sugars, like just an amazing assortment of stuff so we can bake. I actually ended up sharing them with, uh, people in the office that I know do baking with the agreement that they had to bring in baked goods. So we'll see how that turns out. <laughs> um, our editor Christopher is a really amazing baker. So he took a lot of stuff and I can't wait to see what he comes up with. So thank you, thank you, thank you, Sarah. What an incredibly generous gift. That was one of those boxes where when our office manager, Tamika, put it on my desk, there was this moment of, what is this massive shipment of cargo? <laughs> it <laughs> yes, was very thank large. Thank you so much. And suddenly many people were around my desk as we opened it up and pulled everything out and gasped and were excited about all of the yummy, delicious baked treats that are to come. So thank you, thank you, thank you, Sarah. That was so generous and kind. I cannot wait to play with all of it. It looks delicious. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us across the spectrum of social media as Missed in History. So we're on Twitter as at Missed in History, on Instagram at Missed in History, Facebook.com slash Missed in History, Pinterest.com slash Missed in History, Missed in History.tumblr.com. Uh, if you would like to learn a little bit more about what we talked about today, we have you so covered because we did a whole package of things about the James Webb Space Telescope at House of Works. So you can go to House of Works, type in the words James Webb or type in JWST. You're going to get a lot of cool stuff to look at uh, and read and learn more about him and about the telescope. It's so mind-blowing and inspiring. I can't, obviously, I'm very into it. So <laughs> so go do that. Visit me and Tracy at mistinhistory.com where we have a back catalog of all of our episodes ever of all time, as well as show notes for any of the episodes we have worked on together and the occasional other goodies. So please come and visit us at howstuffworks.com and mistinhistory.com. and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't sister. know we were going to go there on this. <laughs> People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in exactly. to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, right. which is different than empathy. Yeah. Right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. This is a show for the Nosabo kids, the, the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth, 
issues affecting the Latin community, and much more. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community. Listen to Life as a Gringo on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.